I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to dig deeper than the surface of the text to discover the heart of the author. For some reason, the book of Exodus, after spending multiple chapters on this tent and all that surrounds it, it chooses to return to the tent once again after just a small narrative break. Now, for modern readers, this presents a problem because we don't like repetition. When we encounter something that's repeated, we exclaim, Okay, I get it. This is important. Now, can we move on? And we skip ahead to see just how far away the rest of the story is. But in doing so, we miss the rest of the story, because the rest of the story is found nestled in the repetition. And one thing I discovered several years back is that when you find something that is repeated, you have discovered a great truth. But it is a general truth. It's one that's wide in scope and it's meaningful. But if you want the deeper truth on a matter, you must take the things that are repeated and compare them closely. And this is especially true when what is being repeated is not being repeated word for word. When there are differences to be found, those differences provide the key to discerning a deeper truth than the surface truth. And if you skip over it because you see that the grand idea is repeated, you will miss the deeper truth that's present. And so when we encounter something that is being repeated, we must be absolutely sure to practice due diligence. We must don our Sherlock hats and pick up our magnifying glasses and compare what we are reading now to what we read before and we will discover that there is a deep truth that is found in the differences, something that will use similarities to highlight the importance of the text, and the differences will reveal what is just so important that this text needs to be repeated. Now, for those of you with good memories, you will remember that I've spoken on this before. In our second lesson on the tabernacle um, several months ago, I made mention of how the order of the tabernacle as presented is reversed from the previous telling. In the previous telling, the tabernacle instructions began in the innermost place of God at the Ark of the Witness, and the instructions then worked outward to the outer courtyard where humans interacted with God. But in this new telling of the tabernacle, the actual building of the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, begins on the outside. And from this we drew the parallel that when God approaches men, he begins in the innermost hidden parts of man. But when men begin their approach to God, we begin by addressing the outermost parts of our lives. And this approach we see modeled in this Parsha and the next. As the people begin to build the tabernacle, they begin with the curtains and boards and pegs. It's only after all of these are constructed that the work is mentioned for the innermost parts. Now it'd be easy to simply stop at this recognition and believe that we have discovered the depth of the differences present and all that these differences reveal for us. But that would be precipitous in my opinion. 
Instead, as a student of this excellent word, we must take the time to dissect the text and discover the underlying themes that are present. And if we pay close attention, we discover that there is something of great significance that is presented in this chapter that was not addressed at all in the previous blueprints. There's a human element on display here. The response of the people to a call and the community working together. So let's read this week's Parsha and then discuss this underlying theme that is being highlighted in this week's text. Exodus 34, 27-36-38 And Hashem said to Moshe, Write these words, for according to the mouth of these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he was there with Hashem forty days and forty nights. He did not eat bread and he did not drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten words. And it came to be, when Moshe came down from Mount Sinai, while the two tablets of the witness were in Moshe's hand, that he came down from the mountain, that Moshe did not know that the skin of his face shone since he had spoken with him. And the Haron and all the children of Israel looked at Moshe and saw the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moshe called out to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moshe spoke to them. And afterward all the children of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that Hashem had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moshe ended speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moshe went in before Hashem to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he spoke to the children of Israel what he had been commanded. And the children of Israel would see the face of Moshe, that the skin of Moshe's face shone, and Moshe would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. And Moshe assembled all the congregation of the children of Israel and said to them, these are the words which Hashem has commanded you to do. Work is done for six days, but on the seventh day it shall be set apart to you, a Sabbath of rest to Hashem. Anyone doing work on it is put to death. Do not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And Moshe spoke to the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the word which Hashem commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to Hashem, everyone whose heart so moves him. Let him bring in as a contribution to Hashem, gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet materials and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and fine leather and acacia wood and oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense and shoham stones and stones to be set in the shoulder garments and in the breastplate and let all of the wise-hearted among you come and make all that Hashem has commanded the dwelling place, its tent, its coverings, its hooks and its boards its bars, its columns and its sockets the ark and its poles, and the lid of the atonement, and the veil of the covering, the table and its poles, and all its utensils, and the showbread, and the lampstand for the light, and its utensils, and its lamps, and the oil for the light, and the incense altar, and its poles, and the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, and the covering of the door at the entrance of the dwelling place, the altar of ascending offering with its bronze grating, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin, and its stand. The screen of the courtyard, its columns in their sockets, and their covering for the gate of the courtyard. The pegs of the dwelling place, and the pegs of the courtyard, and their cords. The woven garments to do service in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron and the priests, and the garments of the sons to service priests. And all the congregation of the children of Israel withdrew from the presence of Moshe. And everyone whose heart lifted him up, and everyone whose spirit moved him, came, and they brought the contribution to Hashem for the work of the tent of appointment and for all its service, and for the holy garments. And they came, both men and women, all whose heart moved them, and brought earrings and nose rings and rings and necklaces, all golden goods, even every one who made a wave offering of gold to Hashem. And every man with whom was found blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine linen and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed dread, and fine leather brought them, 
Everyone who would make a contribution to Hashem of silver or bronze brought it, and everyone with whom it was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. And all the wise-hearted women spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun, the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen. And all the women whose hearts lifted them up in wisdom spun the goat's hair. And the rulers brought shoham stones, and the stones to be set in the shoulder garments and in the breastplate, and the spices for the oil of the light, and for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a voluntary offering to Hashem. All the men and women whose hearts moved them to bring all kinds of work which Hashem, by the hand of Moshe, had commanded to be done. And Moshe said to the children of Israel, See, Hashem has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Chur, the tribe of Yehuda. He has filled him with the spirit of Elohim, in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all work, to make designs to work in gold and silver and in bronze, and in cutting of stones for setting and in carving wood, and to work in all workmanship of design. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach. In him and in Oholiab, the son of Achisamach, the tribe of Dan, he has filled him with skill to do all work of the engraver and the designer and the embroiderer in blue and in purple and scarlet material, and in fine linen and a weaver doing any work, and makers of designs. And Bezalel and Oholiab, and every wise-hearted man in whom Hashem has given wisdom and understanding to know how to do all the work for the service of the holy place, shall do according to all that Hashem has commanded. And Moshe called Bezalel and Oholiab, and every wise-hearted man in whose heart Hashem had given wisdom, everyone whose heart lifted him up to come and do the work. And they received from Moshe all the contribution which the children of Israel had brought for their work of the service of making the holy place. But they still brought to him voluntary offerings every morning. So all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the holy place came, each from the work that he was doing. And they spoke to Moshe, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which Hashem commanded us to do. And Moshe commanded, and they sent this word throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the contribution of the holy place. And the people were withheld from bringing. For what they had was enough for all the work to be done, more than enough. Then all the wise-hearted ones among them who worked on the dwelling place made tent curtains, woven of fine linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. They made them with the caravim, the work of skilled workmen. The length of each curtain was twenty-eight cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits, all the curtains having one measure. And he joined five curtains to one another, and in the other five curtains he joined one to another. And he made loops of blue on the edge of the end curtain, of one set, and the same he did on the edge of the end curtain for the other set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain, and fifty loops he made on the edge of the end of the curtain of the second set. The loops held one curtain to another, and he made fifty hooks of gold and joined the curtains to each other with the hooks, and the dwelling place became one. And he made curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the dwelling place. He made eleven curtains. The length of each curtain was thirty cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits, the eleven curtains having one measure. And he joined five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And he made fifty loops on the edge of the end curtains on one set. And fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain of the second set. And he made fifty bronze hooks to join the tent to be one. And he made a covering for the tent of ram skin dyed red, and a covering of fine leather above that. And for the dwelling place he made boards of acacia wood standing up. The length of each board was ten cubits, and the width of each board a cubit and a half. Each board had two tenons for binding one to another. So he did to all the boards of the dwelling place, and he made boards for the dwelling place, twenty boards for the south side, and he made forty sockets of silver to go under the twenty boards, and two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the other side of the dwelling place, for the north side, he made twenty boards, and there forty sockets of silver, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. 
Then he made six boards for the west side of the dwelling place, and he made two boards for the two back corners of the dwelling place, and they were doubled beneath. And similarly, they were complete to the top by one ring. So he did to both of them for the two corners. And there were eight boards, and their silver sockets, sixteen sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. And he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on the one side of the dwelling place, and five bars for the boards on the other side of the dwelling place, and five bars for the boards of the dwelling place at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to pass through the boards from one end to the other. And he overlaid the boards with gold and their rings, and made of gold to be holders for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold. And he made a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine work linen. It was made with carabim, the work of a skilled workman. And he made four columns of acacia wood for it, and overlaid them with gold, with their hooks of gold. And he cast four sockets of silver for them. And he made a covering for the tent door of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And its five columns with their hooks, and they overlaid the tops of their rings with gold, but their five sockets were of bronze. As the Parsha opens, Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai once again. Forty more days and nights without food or water in the presence of Hashem. And it is there that the tablets are written once again. The covenant that was broken was reforged. And when Moses returned to the people at the base, it says that his face shone with light. Now in my translation, it says that his face shone. But in some early translations of the Bible, the word horn was used. Because the Hebrew word that lies under this idea is the word karan. Just a single vowel sound difference from the word horn or karen. Now this is the word that was used to describe the horns of the altar of sacrifice and incense. And it is the word used for the horns of an animal. Uh, this is also an allusion to the horns that would have been on the golden calf. The horns of an animal were seen as their honor, their source of power. Psalm 92.10 says, But you lift up my horn like the wild ox, and I have been anointed with fresh oil. Or Psalm 89.17, But you lift up my horn like the wild ox, and I have been anointed with fresh oil. Or Psalm 148.14, He also lifts up the horn of his people, the praise of all his lovingly committed ones, the children of Israel, a people near to him. Praise Yah. The symbol of a horn throughout scripture is one of great honor. And in this case, it is a metaphor. Moses did not have horns, and neither do Jews, even though for a time in history the rumor went around that Jews did in fact have horns because of this passage. Now, Back in Exodus 19, we spoke a bit about how the events at Mount Sinai are the background of the festival of Shavuot, the giving of the law and the giving of the Spirit being congruent events that celebrate the same thing. God giving his people something good with which to bring change to the world. God equipping his people to live in the midst of a world of death. And we all know the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The tongues of fire that hovered over the heads of the apostles as the Holy Spirit descended upon them. Now is it possible, and I'm only asking the question, but is it possible that this passage is describing the same thing as Acts 2? Not that Moses' skin shone, or that he grew horns, but that above his head there appeared a light of some sort, one that an author 3,500 years ago described as horn of light, and that another author 2,000 years ago described as tongues of fire. Now, we've already discussed how the events at Mount Sinai are celebrated in the festival of Shavuot, and so while Moses is not returning to the people on Shavuot, the events are directly connected. The covenant has just been renewed, and the same for the apostles at the Pentecost. 
the presence of God descending to be among his people in this case, the presence of God descending to live with Moses outside the camp, and a visible sign of light being the witness to the fact that these men have been in the presence of the Most High God. One man here, and many more on the day of Pentecost. I find it highly likely, but I leave each of you to his own interpretation and understanding of this, as it's not really foundational to our faith. And the people were disconcerted by this light that was near, on, or in Moses. And so Moses responds by hiding his face when speaking to the people. Now, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul speaks on this event in this way. And we're going to read the entire chapter of 2 Corinthians 3 here. So 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 1. Are we to begin to recommend ourselves again, or do we need some letters of recommendation to you or from you? You are our letter, having been written in our hearts, known and read by all men, making it obvious that you are a letter of Messiah served by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on fleshly tablets of the heart. This is a direct allusion being made here to the events of this chapter in the prophecy of Ezekiel 36. And such we trust we have towards Elohim through the Messiah. Not that we are competent in ourselves to reckon any matters as from ourselves, but our competence is from God, who also made us competent as servants of a renewed covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And not tablets of stone and a Torah of black and white that kills, according to Isaiah 28, but a Torah with life and breath. But if the administering of death in letters engraved in stones was honored so that the children of Israel were unable to look steadily at the face of Moses because of the honor of his face, which was passing away, this is the born metaphor being interpreted by Paul, how much more honored shall the administering of the Spirit not be? For if the administering or condemnation had honor, the administering of righteousness exceeds much more in honor. For indeed, what was made honored had no honor in this respect in view of the honor that excels. For if that which is passing away was honored, much more that which remains in honor. Having then such hope, we use much boldness of speech, and not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel should not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were hardened for this day. When the old covenant is being read, that same veil remains, not lifted because of Messiah it is taken away. But to this day, when Moses is being read, a veil lies on their hearts. And when one turns to the master, the veil is taken away. Now Hashem is the spirit, and where the spirit of Hashem is, there is freedom. And we all, as with unveiled face, we see as in a mirror the honor of Hashem, are being transformed into the same likeness, from honor to honor, as from Hashem, the spirit. Paul recalls the veil that Moses placed over his face and then compares it to the spiritual veil that lies over the heart of the Jews who insisted that the Torah was written on stone because it was in fact written on stone, stone tablets for stone hearts. And the Torah seen and practiced in this way, it led to exile after exile. It led to a stumbling backwards and falling and being destroyed because it was to them command upon command and command upon command and line upon line and line upon line, as Isaiah 28.13 says. But the Torah in this iteration of the covenant was no longer written on stone. It is written on flesh. Flesh is soft. It gives. It's warm. It comforts. It breathes and it lives. Ezekiel 36.26-27 says it this way, 
and I shall give you a new heart to put a new spirit within you, and I shall take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I shall give you a heart of flesh, and put my spirit within you, and I shall cause you to walk in my laws and to guard my judgments, and you shall do them. The people of Israel at this point in their journey are not able to perceive God as he wishes for them to know him. They've already demonstrated that they are stiff-necked, using another idiom, that they have acted from their hearts of stone. They're only incapable of understanding rules written on stone. Black and white discipline is the discipline of a child. A veil hides them from the fullest expression of God as Moses was able to experience. And that veil manifests in a literal way as it separates the light of God's presence in Moses from them. Why? Well, because as Paul says, they did not have the Messiah in them to remove the veil. And so Moses is now removed from the people. He's so close to God that he cannot even be seen by them anymore. Now, we discussed holiness several lessons ago, and because of his proximity to God, Moses had gained a level of holiness that makes the people uncomfortable. And as we'll find later on, holiness is transferable. Was this a permanent state of affairs, or did it wear off? Well, who knows? We're not told. But the lesson remains. The tablets of stone are the trainer. They are what provide the framework and the foundation for life in Messiah. Galatians 3, 22-26 says, But the scriptures shut up all mankind under sin, that the promise by faith in Yeshua Messiah might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were being guarded under the Torah, having been shut up for the faith about to be revealed. Therefore the Torah became our trainer unto Messiah in order to be declared right by faith. And after faith has come, we are no longer under a trainer, for you are all sons of God through belief in Messiah Yeshua. Now, does this mean that the Torah has no use anymore? Well, not at all. It is our tutor that leads us to the Messiah. It reveals the way of the Master that we can emulate through his example. It would be extremely foolish to be trained in calculus and then to move out into the world and get a job as a rocket scientist. And simply discard all that you'd learned before, simply because you're not under the teacher anymore. You say, I have received this job through the grace of my employer, and now that my tutor has taught, well, I can be discarded. Rather, the teacher gave you that firm foundation that you can then build off through your experience in your new position. And this new position, it will teach you the application of what you learned under the trainer. We must never lose sight of this. The Torah is our trainer. The Messiah is our Savior. So when Moses returns down the mountain, he gathers the people together and he finally tells them of the instructions that have been given on his first trip. The blueprints are passed on and the people are instructed in the ways of God. And Moses begins as Hashem finished on the mountain with the Sabbath. Now this is significant and it should not be missed. It's really easy to get so busy building something for God that you never actually spend time with God. This should not be so, even as Israel was engaged in the building of the tabernacle, this place of worship, this holy building that would facilitate their relationship to God, they were required to take a break, to spend time not working for Hashem, but being with Hashem. A break must occur for life to be accomplished between God and man, and Hashem has set a weekly date for that relationship building to occur. Don't get so distracted by doing stuff for Hashem or lounging around chasing your own desires that you forget to spend time 
with him. It is essential to our relationship. We often get caught up in questions like, can I garden or can I cook on the Sabbath? But that's not even the point. The point is to stop everything else for him, for relationship, to work on drawing closer to him in every way. Prayer, worship, praise, fellowship. Your experience with God on the Sabbath should never begin or end with your local community. Your entire day should be geared towards getting to know him better. Luke ten thirty eight through forty two, and it came to be that as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house, and she had a sister called Miriam, who also sat at the feet of Yeshua and heard his words. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and coming up, she said, "Master, are you not concerned that my sister has left me to serve alone? Speak to her then to help me." Yeshua answering said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many matters, but only one is necessary, and Miriam has chosen the good portion which shall not be taken away from her. Miriam seemed to understand the Sabbath. When the Master is present, take time to sit and to learn at his feet. Don't get distracted by worries and troubles. It's okay to let the serving sit. The Master is present. Spend time with him. Now, one of the things that's stated in this initial command to Israel in connection to the Sabbath is the command to not kindle a fire in our dwellings on the Sabbath. And this command has been one of the more controversial commands to be found in the Torah. How are we to live it out? Well, let's look at the options. On one end of the spectrum is the way that Orthodox Judaism has taken it. Not only no fire, but no sparks, no ignition of any kind. This means that light switches are to be avoided, cars cannot be driven, and in many cases even appliances are unplugged or turned off in order to avoid creating the spark that would be required to cause them to change from one state to another. This take on this command is, in my opinion, a strict letter of the law type of interpretation. Those who see the law in this way, they see it as written in stone. Those who Paul talks about who have a veil over their eyes that prevents them from seeing the underlying truth of what's really being expressed. On the other end of the spectrum is the purely symbolic interpretation that lands on the stance of the fire speaking of an emotional fire, and so anger is not to be expressed on the Sabbath. No fire in your dwelling. You dwell in your body. Don't light a fire inside of it. Get it? It isn't really speaking of real fire and literal fire. Now, I don't hold this interpretation either, since this outlook is so ripped out of the context as to be completely disconnected from what's being accomplished in the context of the Parsha. Instead, the context of the passage is directly connected to the building of the tabernacle. The giving of this command is connected to this purpose. In my opinion, this is Moses extrapolating the command that was just given. Don't work on the tabernacle on the Sabbath. You know what? Don't even start fires that will be needed for smelting and dyeing and all other uses of fire that will be needed in connection with the tabernacle. Don't even think about getting a head start on your weekly work by prepping something on the Sabbath to be used in your work tomorrow. What's that? A fire takes time to get started? Well enough to do work? So what? The seventh-day Sabbath is the one thing that separates Israel from the nations in their rules for life. It is the biggest part of our testimony of which God we serve. Don't defile it, even if it is for something as profound and meaningful as the building of the tabernacle. 
I think to take this command and to strip it of its context of in your dwellings and build the tabernacle is to lose sight of the spirit of the law that is now written on flesh and not on stone. And to make it apply only to a spiritual or conceptual level is to strip it of its truth and its power. And so, after the reminder to keep the Sabbath and the seriousness of the command, the call then goes out to the community. Bring together what is needed for building this tabernacle for Hashem. Everyone, give of what you have. If you have goods that are needed, then bring in the goods. If you have skills that are needed, then bring your skills. Come together as a community and build this place for Hashem to live in your midst. Remember, as of right now, Hashem is shaming Israel by living outside of their camp. He has removed both himself and Moses and Joshua from their midst. The only way that he returns to them is if they build this tent. And the people, people are hungry. If nothing else, they're hungry to regain their honor at the very least. Hungry to experience the presence of God once again. To be accepted and to be known. Now, this contribution that was given was not commanded. It was not compelled in any way. It was not a tithe. This was a completely voluntary gift for the good of everyone. The people were to give as their hearts moved them to give. And so Moses then dismisses the people. He doesn't call for them to come and to give now in front of everyone. There's no altar call, no basket passed around. Instead, he sends them home and then he waits. Now, I don't think that he waited all that long. The goods were brought in and given to the building of the tent, and everyone who had a skill that could be useful for the construction of the tabernacle gave of their skill, whether in working metal or setting stones or weaving cloth or tanning leather. Now earlier back in chapter 31, two men had been called out who were to be the foremen of this project. It was stated then that Hashem had given them wisdom, knowledge, and understanding to be skilled in all of the trades that were going to be necessary to accomplish this great work, to the level of detail that was going to be needed. But here we read something different about Oholiath and Bezalel. Added to the fact that they had been filled with the Spirit of God with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, we now read in verse 34 that God had put the ability in them to teach these skills to others. They weren't just to be the foremen or the bosses. They were the instructors on how to accomplish the tasks. One who could share their blessings of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding with others. And this is a quality of leadership that we should not miss out on. Leadership requires the ability to teach, to pass on to others the gifts that you have been given. In fact, Paul makes this point very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. through Trustworthy is the word if a man longs for the position of an overseer. He desires a good work. An overseer, then, should be blameless, the husband of one wife, sober, sensible, orderly, kind to strangers, able to teach, not given to wine, no brawler, but gentle, not quarrelsome, no lover of silver, one who rules his own house well, having his children in subjection with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how shall he look after the assembly of God? An overseer, a foreman, a bishop, one who is not the leader like Moses, but who has been entrusted with the overseeing of the completion of a project, such as Oholiab and Bezalel. They must be able to teach, not simply issue orders. They must equip and make disciples according to the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge of God that's been entrusted to them. And before long, Moses has to make the announcement of, 
all right, guys, we have too much. And those who had delayed, those who took their time, they didn't have the opportunity to give to the building of the tent. And so the people come together and they give and give and give. The workers take what's been given by the people voluntarily and they leverage the skills and the items and their own labor and sweat towards accomplishing the construction that they had been instructed to build. And in the latter part of chapter 36, we read of the people coming together and working to build the place for Hashem to dwell. Men and women, weavers and blacksmiths, everyone from every trade offered what they had to the community to build it up. Now this account is awesome to read because it shows what the people of God can do when everyone pitches in to accomplish a task that's been set forth by God and equipped by the Holy Spirit. The thing needed to accomplish God's plans will come forth overflowingly, abundantly in all respects. And in the New Testament, we catch a glimpse of this occurring once again. The people of God giving what they have to build a place for God to dwell. We read this in the book of Acts. Acts 4, verses 23 through 37. And having been released, they went to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And having heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one mind and said, Hashem, you are God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against Hashem and against his Messiah. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the nations and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose decided before to be done. And now, Hashem, look on their threats and give to your servant all boldness to speak your word by stretching out your hand for healing and signs and wonders to take place through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. And when they had prayed, the place where they had come together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. And the group of those who believed were of one heart and one being. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they had all in common. And with great power, the emissaries gave witness to the resurrection of the Master Yeshua, and grace was upon all of them. For there was not anyone needy among them, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of what was sold, and laid them at the feet of the emissaries, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also called Barnabas by the emissaries, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. The people of God were under threat by the ruling powers of the day. They met together and prayed for God's will to be done, and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, they came together and combined their resources for the purpose of building the kingdom of God. Just as in the building of the tabernacle, the people gave willingly. They supported each other. They poured their all into their community. They built the tabernacle for the presence of God to dwell, and he did. Verse 31, when they had finished praying, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this little story is the New Testament corollary of the building of the tabernacle story that we read here in Exodus. The theme and the actions of the people, they're the same. They all come together. They all give of what they had so that there was plenty and abundance all around. And all of it was voluntary. Nothing was coerced, and there was no price of admission. The following story in Acts tells of Ananias and Sapphira, who sold a house and acted in deception. They told everyone that they were going to give a certain amount, and yet 
when it came down to it, they held some back. They didn't have to promise. They didn't even have to give at all. But they did. And even this voluntary offering became a snare for them. In the course of this, they lied to God about their intentions, and they paid the price. So what can we learn from this? Well, first of all, none of us can do this alone. No one is able to build the tabernacle with his own two hands. Community is an absolute necessity in the assembly. There are no lone wolves in the body of Messiah. There are only the sheep of the flock with a single shepherd over them. And that shepherd has appointed overseers over his flock. If you are a lone wolf, you are not part of the flock. If you are a lone sheep, then you are simply easy prey for the wolf that would choose to devour you. But a safe sheep is a sheep that is within a flock. A community provides protection from those who would harm you. It provides sustenance for their own. They support each other in trial and they celebrate together in victory. And that's where we find ourselves today. The people of God are in desperate need of community. We've all been scattered to our homes. We have had our places of worship closed for the good of all who attend. A choice that was necessary for the heart of the Ketuvah in Exodus 21-23 through is the protection of the vulnerable. And there are vulnerable in our community when it comes to COVID-19. But now because of it, we face a greater challenge. Because we're all scattered. We all live in our homes pursuing our own dreams. We have bought into the American dream and we have allowed the factor of money and comfort to be the deciding factors on where we live and who we live next to. We have turned to the government to care for our poor, to keep us safe, to set our rules. We've assimilated into our culture and our culture has assimilated us. All of us. I'm not immune. None of us are. But I would like to propose a change, and in this, I think we can learn a lot from the Muslim community. Why is it that Muslims have been able to virtually take over the state of Michigan? It's because they've been smart about where they moved. They intentionally chose to live next to each other. They've taken over the majority of large cities over the course of a generation because they allowed the choice of where to live to be based on who they were living next to. Factors such as comfort or money or location, they're not their primary motivators. They have allowed community to be their driving force in making their decisions. Where do the others who are like me live? Well, that's where I choose to live. Muslims in Michigan will have a dollar passed through 17 times through their community, not leaving the hands of someone who also lives near to them, who thinks like them, who believes like them before that dollar then passes out of the community into the hands of someone from the outside. Why is this? It's because they're intentional with where they spend their money. They choose Muslim-owned businesses, Muslim contractors, Muslim grocers, Muslim gardeners, and landscapers. The average Christian? Well, the money goes from our employers, who are usually not Christian, or if they are, it's somewhat secret, to some corporate conglomerate. The bank holds our mortgage, the company that provides our self-service, the utility that brings our power and water, the Walmart or the Aldi that brought our food to the U.S. from China or Brazil or Belize, the Amazon and Netflix or Disney that provides our entertainment. The average Christian uses a dollar one time before it leaves the hands of the community. Instead of building each other up, we're building up people whose stated purpose is against us. And why? 
because we've bought into this idea that we're part of a melting pot, that there's no great difference between us and the world, that we're all just people and nothing separates us and makes us different from each other. But that's not true. That's the first step towards global governance. The fact is that we are all different. There are a thousand cultures out there, and we shouldn't be trying to meld them into one. We should be attempting to retain our unique identity and stay separate from others. And the problem is not that we have differences. The problem is when we allow our differences to then drive us to harm our neighbors. When we allow the differences to put us on a pedestal and them in the gutter. When we use our tribe to conquer another tribe through force of arms. Because this is the way that mankind was created. We were separated from each other for a reason after the flood. We were given different languages for a reason at Babel. And that reason was for our own protection. Without it, we become our own gods, limited only by the power of our imaginations. And when our imagination is the limit, well, then we don't need limits that were set by God. Anything that you want can be accomplished. Anything that our twisted hearts desires can be accomplished. We've given up on the power of something called tribalism. Now make no mistake that tribalism is something that has been denigrated in our modern world. It's said that tribalism is what leads to wars. Tribalism is the cause of suffering. It's responsible for creating small factions constantly fighting with each other. Tribalism is blamed for the political divides that are found in America today. Tribalism is the boogeyman that is pointed to as the source of many of the ills of society. And so the world has tried to fight against tribalism. But it's tribalism that protects us. It protects us from the oppressive overreach of tyranny. It protects us from invaders. It protects us from the wolf that would invade into our midst. Tribalism and the terrain is what has allowed the Taliban to not be conquered by either Russia or the U.S., two of the greatest powers in the modern world, and they could not defeat the bands of tribes in the desert. Tribalism protected Judah from the Greeks in the times of the Maccabees. Some tribes chose to sit down and not fight on the Sabbath, and they were slaughtered in their homes. The tribes of the Maccabees and others stood up and fought despite the Sabbath, because there was a greater purpose. The right tribe cares for its people. It cares for their ill. It helps their poor. It protects their weak, and it defends their vulnerable. A tribe can be the source of great joy and peace and security. And we've lost this. Our tribe is now America, or our state, or our city, or our neighborhood. This can't be. Our tribe needs to find its identity in Yeshua. If our tribes find their identity in the world, it's only a matter of time before you become the scapegoat that the tribe turns to to expunge. But as long as we are separate, we cannot be safe. We cannot have community. And with the changes that our world is going through, we may never have a true semblance of community ever again. For what happens to our community if the power goes out? If it becomes every man for himself? No more Zoom, no more YouTube teachings, no more podcasts. What happens when the platforms that we rely on for our instruction turn against us and ban us because our message does not conform to their community standards? What happens when the enemy shows up on our doorsteps? What happens when the next pandemic hits, such as H1N1 in 2009 or SARS in 2003? We're split, once again, unless we do something about it now. 
unless we grow our family beyond those who live in our homes and we create communities of family, unless we create tribes. For this, this is the new normal. We hate hearing it said, but it in fact is. Even if the economy is reopened, social distancing is going to be a thing for 18 more months at a minimum. This means that our community practices are going to have to change. We're going to have to change. We are going to have to adapt. Not to what the world wants us to, though. Disconnected from each other. The only thing that can happen with a flock that's been scattered is that it becomes easy prey for the wolves that would seek to devour us. But a community that is established and formed stands a much better chance. The world is calling for a new normal of separation. I call for a new normal of intentional closeness. Choosing the people that we want to live with. Doing whatever it takes to move into close proximity. and Everyone working together for the building of the house of God. Everyone working together, voluntarily bringing what they have for the good of all. The Jews, they want to build a house of stone for God with the third temple. I say let's build a house of flesh. One that God can inhabit and use to bring his kingdom to the world. Because none of us can survive what's coming on our own. We need people around us who are on the same path that we are. Deresh Chai is not something that happens alone. Life does not grow in isolation. In isolation, life dies. But in community, life can grow. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we Seek Life. Shalom.